0: Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty with the InfoCube Culture Podcast. I'm here with Oren Shaw. Oren is the founder of Ayara, who focus on sustainable DevOps. Orin, welcome. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get to this place and what is sustainable DevOps?
1: So how did I get to this place, I think, is a good place to start. I started getting into software development in the very early 2000s, so I think 2001, 2002. Getting into building websites, because like everyone was building websites. The web was, even though it was about 10 years old at this point, still very, very, very new. So just like small, building little contract websites, exceedingly badly, I might point out. So everything about backend dev is like, now we know how to make web servers on the internet. I did not know how to do that, and kind of none of us really knew what we were doing, but I was, didn't know what I was doing to an aggressive degree. <laughs> I think the only, if with the current look of the knowledge I have around information security and good software design, the one thing I was doing correctly, out of all of this, the one thing, was I knew not to have SQL injection. That was it. <laughs> Everything else, no. The OS top 10, no. Probably not, but it was 2001. We didn't really have that yet. And so from there, I kind of, it was websites. We used databases. I moved through there into working for a Postgres consultancy for several years. I was a big, or not a big part. I was a member of the Postgres community, and they're a bunch of lovely people. We had a lot of really cool conversations. Eventually, I ended up looking at the Weta Digital website. I'd always wanted to be working in visual effects. So I was looking at their website, and they had a role for a programmer. And I looked at it and I said, I could do that. I sent them my resume and they wrote back and said, you could do that. Want to move to New Zealand? And I said, yes. And then I moved to New Zealand. It turns out moving across the world is is more complicated than that. But you know, it's well into a little story. And Weta Digital was amazing. They're doing so much cool stuff, but the specific stuff that they had me doing was the same thing I'd been doing up to then, using web technology to build websites. But with one critical difference, up until this point, I had never worked with any sort of DevOps tooling. And because what a digital has to deal with effectively a supercomputer, like their render farm, they can't do what I had been considering like the normal flow of having this dedicated person to run a couple of machines. That just does, doesn't work. It doesn't work at that scale. And it can't work at that scale. So they, they really went heavy on the automation on using these tools and techniques to manage the fleet. And so I, a little Orin, came to the system and I said, hey, I would like to run this web thing I've made on some servers, please. And they looked at me and they just kind of went, Orin, you're great, but have you heard about Puppet? And so I wandered off uh, to go and learn about Puppet and actually this kind of blew my mind. This was my first real exposure to DevOps tools, to DevOps concepts, to moving beyond doing it by hand to actually systematizing building out everything like and taking it from beyond just my little program, just this one piece that I had to work on, to actually understanding that when I wrote that program, when I tested it on my desktop, wasn't running my program until I had built it all the way through Puppet and deployed it onto a machine and watched it run in a production like environment, I had never run my program. And that's a really interesting and new perspective for me. And this was kind of what working at what taught me when I got into the DevOps tooling side of things. And so that's kind of like how I got to about four years ago. And then it kind of shifts because as a, everything I've talked about up to now is all about the tooling, all about how to use the tools to achieve an end. But why? Why are we using tools to do this? Well, in Weta's case, they needed to manage quite a few machines. But what did that mean in terms of, what I was doing. Well, it meant that I had to rethink how I was approaching the software build pipeline. So I left Weta Digital in 2013 and moved to Catalyst IT to help work on the cloud. And they were kind of on board with the DevOps processes sort of as well. They were moving in that direction, but they weren't as far along. There's no like way of measuring this. So I would say they were doing things differently than Weta, they didn't have as much automation, but whether or not that's further or less far, it's, you can't use those terms. And one of the things I noticed that was different was there was less of the culture, the understanding of the underpinnings of what we were trying to do. And that's not a good or bad thing. It's just an is thing, right? It is the context in which we find ourselves. And that was when I really started to understand that DevOps isn't about the tooling. It is about the context in which we find ourselves. So when I start talking about sustainable DevOps as part of IARA and the things that I do, the DevOps architectures that I build, what I'm talking about is reframing contexts. And a really good way that I thought of, I think, last week or the week before, of framing this is Conway's Law. Have you heard of Conway's Law?
0: Yes, indeed. And Conway's Law is something that amazingly comes up a lot on IntroQ. We find at QCon conferences, inevitably, there's going to be two or three talks where somebody will mention Conway's Law because it, mm-hmm. it has such a profound impact on our industry.
1: It does. So, Conway's Law. We make artifacts that encode our organization, but what's the inverse? The inverse of Conway's Law is that adopting artifacts requires us to rethink our organizations because organizations won't work that way. There will be a conflict. And we can see this. We can see this with the microservices architecture as a brilliant example. Microservices is not a technical architecture. People try to present it as a technical architecture. It's not, it is a team organizational structure. Microservices only works if you have team decomposition to the point where individual teams can work on individual components and there can be interfaces that can be cleanly defined. If you can't do those things, you can't have microservices that work well. So this is a cultural constraint on a technical idea. And that's where I start talking about sustainability, because I want to use microservices. Cool. Do you know what that means? Well, no. Okay. So I want to use microservices in my singleton team or my two different teams. Okay, cool. Um, You'll have a bunch of microservices in a single repo or a couple of repos. That's fine. That is fine. That works. But then you'll just kind of have a mono deployment because you won't have the team architecture that demands that you have uh, decoupled deployments, that demands that you be able to upgrade things side by side out of sync because there's no pressure. There is no system that requires that you do that thing. You just end up with a monolith deployment that happens to use network sockets as the API points instead of class boundaries as the API points. The same thing we can see with a Docker. Docker requires a radical rethink of how we structure our team concept of what deployment means. Docker requires that we think of deployments as completely idempotent. It requires that we really tightly adhere to the 12-factor the design paradigm. These are not technical paradigms. This is ideas of how our teams ought to work and the things that we should value. They're technical ideas, but they, through the inverse of Conway's law, impose cultural constraints. They impose organizational patterns. So yes, Sustainable DevOps is working with companies to build the system, to understand the system they're in and say, if you want to use these patterns, you'll need to change like this. And it's not just your tech teams. It's never just the devs and the ops teams. This touches everything. And very few people like, immediately understand that. There's a very sort of limited idea within the tech conversation of that. It's an out of context problem for a lot of us. So if we're talking about DevOps, and reframing culture, and the inverse of Conway's Law in this way, well, if I'm asking you, your company, to rethink what a deployment means, the follow-on to that is, I'm asking your company to rethink what a release means. Which means I'm asking your company to rethink what project management means, and who owns release, and who owns done. And that walks back to who owns the timelines, and that walks back to Where's the money coming from that enables all of this? And that goes back to what are the business goals that are going to provide the money, that are going to initiate the project, that are going to reframe what a delivery means, and allow you to have the sort of continuous integration, continuous deployment model that you're asking for. But I just want you
0: to drop in a piece of technology.
1: Well, sure, I can give you technology. I'm happy to give you technology but it won't work. And it especially won't work because of that deadline I mentioned just a moment ago. When you've got a deadline, what is the immediate thing you do when you're starting to come up to it? Panic? Yes, panic. I panic too. Everyone panics when the deadline's getting closer and closer, and you're just getting more and more stressed, and you just need to get it done. When you go to, I need to get it done, the first thing you do is drop all of these new things that I have said, hey, here's some cool tech, because... You don't know the edges. It's all ephemeral and kind of fuzzy. And when a deadline's up, you have external systems, pressures that are saying, I need fixed timelines. I need to know what this will take. Right now, I need to know this because the deadline is two weeks away. What are you doing? Come on, what are you doing? Just do the thing. So even though I can give you tools that will make a problem solvable in 30 minutes, that's solvable in 30 minutes for me having four years of experience working with the tool and having internalized the cultural constraints that go into the tool, it's not 30 minutes for you, or it could be 30 minutes for you, but it's 30 minutes of uncertainty. It is 30 minutes that requires two weeks worth of experimentation to see how it fits into your technical stack. So when the deadline's coming and the pressure's there, you will drop those tools. You'll go back to what you were doing. And once that happens, it's done. You've lost it. because. Everyone around you, the systems around you say, well, you didn't need that new thing. We still got a release. Everything's fine. We don't need this. So actually, we're just not going to give you room to experiment. We're not going to give you room to try new things. Well, we can't afford the resourcing, or we don't think it should be resourced. And as soon as you do that, as soon as a company says, we are not resourcing for experimentation and failure, you can't do DevOps. There is just no way to move that way. There are ways, but it becomes exceedingly difficult. And that is why I start thinking about it as a very holistic thing, very strong cultural reforming of an entire company. And this even has downstream effects. Like, what does a release mean for QA, for frontline staff, like help desk that fields customer calls? Are you providing them documentation? Can you provide them documentation? Is that part of the story that went into developing the software? If it's not, why not? Are they, we're Hope Desk, able to come back to the development side and say, hey, we don't have the resources we need. Why not? And DevOps should be able to create those artifacts because we're talking about a process, a communications culture that is about communications, that is about feedback, that is about stakeholder engagement at a very profound level.
0: This really, really is a significant disruption to the way that many, many organizations are currently working. You're you're breaking down the silos. You're having to collaborate in ways that we haven't done before. So how do you help people come along on this
1: journey? (laughs) It often is tailored to individual companies. There's some broad strokes that I can paint for this. Usually an engagement will look like, I come in and I document the existing processes. I find out what teams exist, what units exist, and the projects that have been completed. Because everyone's completed projects. You have always made things and delivered them. Conway's Law. What do the artifacts look like? From there, I get an idea of how the process works. And this is where I start thinking about the system. Where can I put pressures that change the course of the river? I don't want to, like, dam the river. I don't want to make a lake. No one wants to make a lake. Getting into I want to make a lake thinking means that you're kind of reinforcing the pattern that sort of Devon Ops silos that we've already had of, well, we'll say no, and that means it'll just get bypassed. And so we build the dam, and actually, it's just going to go, you know what, I'm cutting a new river over here. Goodbye. So it's all about guiding the river. So an example of a pressure one could add is, well, if I want to initiate a new project, how am I resourcing time for experimentation? How am I considering failure? And we can start having like a big long conversation about what failure looks like within a financial context. And if we're doing that, that means that we can make a little, just like a little rock that sits in the river and kind of pushes it to the side. Because we're saying, as part of this process, we need to rethink how we fail. We need to rethink what a failure looks like in terms of technical failure, because failure is inevitable. The things that we make will crash and burn in interesting and new ways. But that is like one pressure that we can add. Another is talking with change management. People I've talked to within the industry in Wellington have talked about working with their change management process. They had a project manager that was able to isolate the team sufficiently that they had a bit more space to start experimenting. So they were moving towards continuous integration and continuous delivery. And so they were delivering artifacts. The change management was going, this is making me very unhappy and nervous and I don't like it. So they grabbed the change management and sat them down and said, okay, cool. This is what we're doing. This is the things we get out of it. In this case, it was Git tagging and good commits and being able to prove that an artifact had these things in it and should, in theory, resolve these issues. And the change management person went this is so cool. I now have better visibility to my goals. My pressures in very specific ways are alleviated. And that's the engagement. That is the cultural pressure change. We're finding places where we can add little rocks, not big ones, not huge disruptions, but tiny disruptions that change where we're going.
0: So your change management story is a a good one, because in most organizations, change management is change resistance
1: it is and that comes from a position of anxiety like the business and this is again holistic views the business is trying to achieve a goal and the goal is often to deliver customer value sell something to customers customers want cool in a dev world especially for larger organizations this isn't about good or bad good or bad don't really exist it's just is and this is a big segue I'll go off on this segue for a minute. We, as technologists, frame things as good or bad. Good or bad is within our own Conway's Law contexts. Mm. We don't ask, is this helping us meet our goals? We ask, is this good relative to the culture I find myself in? And this is kind of the genesis of my entire contempt culture sort of conversation, is the way we build that context and the way we reinforce that context and the way it prevents us from asking, is this giving us good results? Anyway, I digressed. So coming back, we're talking about, with regards to change management, they're resistant because the business doesn't want to visibly fail. So they build these processes that take a long time because they're trying to not fail. It feels risky to change the service. It feels risky to change the things. It's very difficult to communicate that being resistant in this way makes it more likely to fail and makes the failures larger and more intense. If we don't have automation, we can't recover quickly. If we don't have quick deployments, if we have to go through a long process to get to, I can deploy a thing, we don't have the ability to react to security vulnerabilities. We don't have the ability to react quickly to outages. And there will be processes to bypass that. So change management gets bypassed. People just like rush through a change. But then why do you have change management? Why is that even there? If you're panicking and running the system and bypassing all of these controls that you've added, why is it even there? So it is an attempt to mitigate risk, but it doesn't consider all of the risks that go into it. Like we, as technologists, have had a hard time communicating that. And I think that is one of the key struggles that a lot of technologists are trying to introduce DevOps in their company themselves, because there's always people who are like, no, I really want to use Puppet, or I really want to use Docker, I really want to do these new things. They're getting this pushback because communicating this stuff is super hard. We don't, as a technology community, have good language for speaking to people outside of our technical spheres. There is, as you almost certainly aware, decades upon decades of really hostile behavior and really hostile narratives towards people who don't know what we know. And that makes that conversation really hard to have. Even if we are coming to that conversation with good intentions, with respect, with the objective of getting a good conversation going... We exist within this broader context of, these people have been treated badly by people like us. They don't trust us anymore. They don't trust us at all. We are siloed the way we are because they don't trust us. And that's a hard pill to swallow.
0: How do you break those mistrust barriers?
1: Again, it comes down to systems. The initial way to do that is to go and look at the technology teams. So dev and ops will always split in one of two ways. One way is devs win, and they always force ops to do things, and ops becomes very like brittle and resistant, and they try to say no a lot. The other way is ops wins, and this is wins in the political sense. Ops wins, and they just say no to everything because they're part of that change management process that says, no, actually, this is our business pressure that we have to adhere to. We're just going to say no to you because we can't meet the current business requirements without doing that thing. So either of these cases means there is a lack of organizational trust for either devs or ops or both. And we're not even going to get into how information security is handled, but it's largely the same way. The security team will say, no, you can't do that thing. And they will try to build systems that prevent. So the first major reframing, the first major thing to do to build trust within an organization as technologists is to say yes. Just flat out, we say yes. Because we say yes means we have to work with you the consumer, our client, our client is like other business units within an organization. Our client is QA. Our client is, in a lot of cases, project management. Our client is Helpdesk. As a developer, I've made software. Helpdesk is the people answering the phones about the software I made. They're my client. I need to deliver value to them. So we have to say yes to them. We have to build that trust. And it's not yes, but no. It's yes, I want to help you to do this thing let's find a way to do it that meets the other necessities, the other pressures we have. So in an information security sense, this is, yes, I recognize this thing you need to do for your job. And there could be a variety, like I need to be able to open DocX files for my email. So yes, but, or not. Yes. And is, okay, let's talk about not a blame centric culture of, well, you opened the wrong thing. You didn't understand that this was a fish. It's, Yes, okay, we'll build systems over here that make it really difficult for these things to get to you at all, so that you're not at fault if it gets through. We are. We will absorb that blame. We will become part of that trust story. And it's never about us being blamed. It's about us suddenly understanding that a system failed that enabled a failure to happen. There's a great story from Gather Conference two years ago, where they talked about a major production outage. And this was a business that a production outage, they were losing... I think a couple hundred thousand dollars a minute, like fairly major, major throughput. And they were down for a thing an hour. They were unimpressed with the whole thing. And there was one person, they knew who did it. And they could have gone and said, okay, cool. You cost us this much money, you're fired. Out, leave, we fire you now.
0: Yeah, that would It'd be the norm in most organizations.
1: That would be the norm. But what does that tell you? Well, that creates a culture of fear, a distrust. You as a technologist, you as a team, now distrust the organization. So you will be super resistant to any change. This becomes no. This is the same story of how distrust is created. Distrust is created by saying no over and over and over again. So what they did instead was they said, okay, cool. You did the thing. How come that was allowed to happen? And they walked it back. They walked back all the way through to find a place six months before that caused it. And it was a change control didn't get set properly and then too much work ended up on the guy's plate and there was a bunch of end ends that led to he was logged into the production machine for some reason and then oh there's an outage i just need to fix it bunk, 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 bunk. oh no we've
0: uh, all had that moment
1: we've all had that moment. i've had that moment it's terrifying yeah amazon had largely the same thing with the s3 outage last year of you could run the software and it was should have been fine But the system around it allowed you to run the software against production in a way that caused unforeseen circumstances. Mm. And then we had an S3 outage and they went back and I didn't hear that they fired anybody over it, but I did hear a lot of they went back and just did analyze the system and fixed it Mm. and made it so you couldn't do that.
0: Mm.
1: And that's what I mean is you're kind of coming at it from a different angle of how do I enable you to do your job to make good choices while still building a system again, rocks in a river, that guide you away from dangerous actions.
0: Work on the system, change the system around, build trust, say yes. Sounds
1: easy. Everything sounds easy in practice. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's the stack overflow problem, if you've heard that, where you give the idea of stack overflow. Like, it's a web board where you ask questions and people respond. Well, this sounds really straightforward. I could bash this out in a weekend. And you could get a, a skeleton together in a weekend. You have logins. You have a place where you post questions. You have a place where you post comments. You've got user profiles. Okay, I'm done. Are you? Are you actually done? And then done becomes, oh, well, you can add, oh, I've deployed it onto, S- onto Amazon. Okay, now it's done. Are you? Why would people come to your thing? Do you understand Metcalf's law and the implications of that? Do you understand community building? Do you understand how to build a community that is pleasant, that wants to help, that wants to not just show off that they're smarter than you? Do you understand that that is a component of your done story? And this is the same thing. It's It sounds easy. It sounds easy to just say yes. But saying yes is... We can view it under the context of Conway's law. I'm describing organizational structures that have produced specific artifacts. The artifact being trust, blameless, all of these things. We can consider that to be a technology. We can invert that in Conway's law. You can't use these tools, they don't fit in your organization. So it looks easy, it's just say yes, it's fine. But you can't culturally because. You want to, as a technologist, you want to say yes. Let's take that as our core axiom. I want to say yes. What are the systems around me that force me to say no? Change management is a big one. Operations has to say no because change management. I can't say yes. I have to change that. And then there's downstream effects to that. So while it sounds easy on the surface, this is where it gets into that very holistic view of we have to find all of the places that add pressures that create the results that we don't want and slowly modify those so that they allow changes that we do want, they allow actions that we do want, and then change them slowly further to start preventing the actions we don't want. It's a slow journey. You can't do this quickly. Well, I mean, you can, but you can't do it quickly, but it's like taking a cruise ship and saying, well, actually we want to rotate 90 degrees, and then dismantling the whole thing and reassembling it on the fly. You could try and maybe you'll succeed if you thought about it a lot before you did, but more than likely you'll just sink.
0: Because we're, we're talking about people change. We're talking mm-hmm. about attitude changes. And they they do take time.
1: They do take time. Uh, and
0: I, I really appreciate your bringing that importance of building trust and, and creating the trusting environment. And trust is a challenge in many organizations.
1: It is. We get punished. The system punishes us. This is one of the core axioms, is the systems punish us for the behaviors it doesn't want us to perform. And that, as a core, has to change. Mm -hmm. If it's punishing us, we're going to become defensive. We're going to become resistant. We're going to become, in a lot of ways, just unhappy to do anything in the organization. And we see this. We see people just being like, "Eh, status quo, Mm -hmm. done. I'm checking out mentally and doing my job. I'm checking out mentally and doing my job in a way that like, you know what, I just, I'm gonna bring my best game and I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna do other things. That's fine. The whole passion narrative is his own thing of toxicity and unhappiness that I don't wanna talk about right now. Mm -hmm. What I'm more referring to is the checking out where you're just like gonna stonewall because you understand the system and you don't wanna deal with changing it because you've been burned so many times already. You've pushed and been burnt and pushed and been burnt and you see the change coming and you're like, I'm just going to get burnt again. I'm not about this. I'm done with that thing.
0: Well, the studies tell us that lots and lots of people have been burned because up to two-thirds of people in organizations are actively disengaged. They have checked out.
1: They have. And that's a problem in a lot of ways. That's a big problem. And then that gets into really uncomfortable questions. Really uncomfortable questions. What is the system? at a leadership level that caused that to happen. And it's not just the leadership system. And I really wanna make this clear that the systems are like an onion. There's the systems that exist within the business. So within technologists, they have a system and then project management applies a system and then leadership applies a system and then society applies a system. So we internalize the world around us. We perform those ideas of what is and isn't okay. We call this civilization. I mean, this is the background of what we do and why. That gets applied to our business. And there's no good or bad, Like it just is. Good and bad only matter in the context of our outcomes. And good only means helps us achieve our outcomes and bad only means does not help us achieve our outcomes. So within this broader context, we just didn't notice that we were doing it, that there was a system that told us to behave in this way. We never asked, we never interrogated it. Technologists have the same problem and this is where contempt culture came from is There's this system that says, this is how it's okay to act. This is how you should think. And we took that in and we said, okay, I now know how to act. I now know how to participate in my community. And if everyone's doing the thing, you feel like you belong. You feel like you're a participant. You're you're there. Great example of how this goes terribly, terribly wrong is the Linux kernel mailing list. That's well known to be rampantly toxic. They're forcing people out because people are I don't want to deal with this. I don't need to deal with this. I don't need to be berated for trying to help. These people want to participate in like, possibly the most important free software project around, and they're being forced out. They're being forced out by cultural pressures and cultural acceptance of behaviors. That's a system. That is a system that is not being examined, that is not being asked, what are the outcomes of this, and do we want those outcomes? And that is what we're seeing with a lot of these things. So when we say our companies are creating this active disengagement, we're not just looking within the company for the reasons why that happened. And there's no blame. There's no blame game here. I really want to stress that there is no blame game. What we're looking at is all of the systems that kind of feed into the pressures that make you feel like that's how you have to behave or the feelings that drive, oh, this is just what normal is. And then reframing that, reframing that means that suddenly, and this is really where I stress good and bad don't exist, just is. We're starting to have to examine the fact that we have done things that we're not happy about, that we are not happy we made choices that we made. And that's hard. And that's usually where things get a bit more difficult because every organization, when I'm working with them, hits this. Everyone I talk to hits this because... I am framing things in a new way, in a new light that makes that internal narrative look like I'm the hero of my life. Yes, you are. You are the hero of your life. I'm now asking you to consider that the things you have done had downstream effects that you didn't like, that are in conflict with how you see yourself as a person. That's hard. That is super hard to have to deal with and scary and anxiety inducing. And this is a lot of where that framing that I bring of there is no good or bad, there is just is. This is a tool. This is a tool to help you ask, on, in an ongoing nature, in an introspective part of your world, what are the downstream effects of this thing I'm about to do? Or this thing I have been doing? Do I want those effects? And I can't answer that for people. I can't say yes or no. There is no good or bad. Yes or no is yours. And I bring people to that point, And then we go from there.
0: Or a really interesting conversation and you open up some fascinating questions, and I think you've left the audience with a really interesting challenge. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. If people want to continue the conversation, how do they get hold of you?
1: The best way to find me is on Twitter. I am at Orin. You can also reach out to iOra and I'll be happy to talk to you further. I've got some content on my personal blog that kind of dives into sort of the cultural ramifications of the things we do with as technologists. Still writing all of the thoughts around that have kind of gone over today but systemic change and how the systems of a business function so we're getting there best way to hear more about that is to come ask me directly
0: thanks Uh, so much
1: thank you